Hey, you guys, this is Daryl. This is the Martyr Made Substack subscriber podcast. I'm sorry, I'm a little late getting this one out. I did what I always do, got myself in over my head in about a hundred different rabbit holes. And so, as a result, this episode will cover a lot of ground and we'll see how well it hangs together. Uh, it won't tie up every loose end that I throw out there, but as we move along, through some follow-on episodes, through some interviews and other individual pieces I'm getting ready, uh, all those loose ends will hopefully eventually be tied up. Now, this wasn't the episode that I was actually going to release this week. I've got a whole other episode on the role of women and the feminine principle in mythology and some of its historical and linguistic implications as societies that centered themselves around the feminine principle came into contact with warrior societies with a very different ethos kind of the history and implications of that. Uh, But I recently read a book written by a friend of mine by the name of James Poulos. He's the executive editor of the American Mind website, which operates under the banner of the Claremont Institute. Uh, The book is, well, books about a lot of things, but it's about how things have rapidly changed due to digital technology and how to survive in this new world, put it that way, I suppose, very broadly speaking. It's a great book, uh, very, very dense with ideas, very well written. And he asked me to write a review for it. And so I did. I wrote a short little review for American Mind. But, uh, you know, the book got my noodle noodling quite a bit. And so I figured it was best to just follow my nose and see where it goes. Uh, We will get back to that other topic soon enough. This episode really just sort of begins with some of the ideas in his book and then heads off in its own direction, as my episodes tend to do. Uh, The book, by the way, is called Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. It'll be out very soon. I suggest you keep it on your radar. Let this episode be the beginning of my endorsement and recommendation. So without further ado, I guess we'll call this episode, I hadn't thought about it yet, we'll call it Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War, Part 1. Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. In his short work, Man and Technics, Man and Technics, Oswald Spengler, the German author, one of my favorite authors, as some of you know, and as many of you will hear about soon, uh, predicted that the conquest of the earth by technology was not something that was going to be stopped by a Luddite revolution or some environmental catastrophe but that it would grind to a halt as the human beings who design and run the machines and and research new ones simply lost interest in maintaining that system. 
They'd be disgusted by the results of their victory in the long war they've waged against nature, and as a result, men would eventually just fold up their schematics, lay down their tools, and retreat to a simpler life, as our civilization seeks peace and quiet in which to run out our final days. Media and tech theorist James Poulos does not share the old German's optimism. Spangler could not have foreseen the disaster about which Poulos writes in this new book of his, Human Forever. The French philosopher Paul Virilio, upon whose work Poulos draws to precise and, and powerful effect throughout the book, once observed that every new technology brings into the world with it a new disaster. So to invent the ship is to invent the shipwreck. The invention of the powered machine inaugurated an era of man-made disasters of mythical scale. From the Hindenburg to the Titanic to the Bhopal chemical disaster, the inventions of mankind trapped and turned on us with wrath that was previously reserved for the gods. And yet for all their sublime, destructive power, the catastrophes of the industrial age nevertheless remained localized. You know, they were something that we might conceivably avoid or at least run away from. You know, like a tornado or a giant lizard attacking the city. It was only at Chernobyl in 1986 that we began to glimpse the world-encompassing potential of technologically driven catastrophe, but already by then, there in the late 80s, the heralds had announced the birth of a new technics, and with it, a new disaster. And there is no hiding from the disaster of the digital age. Virilio coined the term integral accident to describe disasters that cause unpredictable cascading failures as a result of having made ourselves dependent on the smooth operation of systems whose complexity has outrun our analytical capabilities. He told an interviewer, quote, Just like there has been a change in the nature of the accident somewhere in the 18th and 19th century, from the natural accident towards the industrial accident, we now witness a fresh transmutation from the industrial accident to its post-industrial successor. This transmutation is accompanied by a very substantial increase in scale. The industrial accident is still the kind of event that takes place. The post-industrial accident, on the other hand, goes beyond a certain place. You might say that it does no longer take place, but becomes an environment, end quote. Becomes an environment. From the, from the accumulating cloud of satellites and space debris orbiting above our heads to the fiber optic networks running through ground and sea below us, technology no longer refers to a tool or a technique. It refers to the very environment in which we live and breathe and have our being. When the 2010 explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig created a kind of artificial hydrocarbon volcano in the Gulf of Mexico, many experts at the time, I remember watching this on the news, they were predicting long-term biospheric damage on an unimaginable scale. 
Newspapers are running op-eds suggesting that maybe we should use an atomic bomb and detonate it at the site of the leak to cauterize the wound. But while the damage was obviously extensive, it did not kill the Gulf, as one energy industry expert told an interviewer that it would. It turned out that digital technology had provided mankind with tremendous power to address disasters of the industrial age, which this one was. I remember the feeling of I remember the feeling that I was witnessing something momentous when I don't know how, how many of you guys remember this or paid a lot of attention to it, but uh, I was watching a 24/7 live stream from a camera installed near the site of the leak, 5,000 feet underwater. Millions of people from all over the world were watching this daily in real time as robots that were remotely controlled from the surface worked a mile beneath the surface to stop the flow of oil into the Gulf. The robotic and communication technology that made this possible, these things were not the product of a lone genius or some tinkerer in his garage. These were obviously the, the combined effort over many years of research and corporate and governmental institutions. It, 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 it was almost a whole-of-mankind effort, as if mankind itself, taking another step toward being a true singular noun, was watching as one, working through vast collective institutions, and, and was guiding its instruments to perform surgery on the Earth. Now, it's at least conceivable I don't know if it'll happen, but I think it's at least conceivable that artificial intelligence and machine learning, by their power to predict, analyze, and control, may one day render things like plane crashes and nuclear accidents and car wrecks all but a memory. I can imagine that. You know, I can imagine, at least imagine, a world of driverless cars where every car is in communication with every other car, linking the traffic of whole cities into a gigantic network that's overseen by an artificial intelligence that controls and redirects the flow for optimal efficiency and safety. But what disaster, if every new technology does bring with it a new disaster, as Virilio said, what disaster was clutching at its heel when this technology was born? Virilio describes the 9-11 attacks and Hurricane Katrina, and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill as examples of how modern telecommunications technology has in a way turned every disaster into a global disaster. And com- What he means by that, just compare the discovery uh, that we had many years into the American invasion of Afghanistan, that many Afghans, despite the fact that we had been over there in their country, occupying their country for years by this point, that many of them had never heard of 9-11. And compare that to the suburban housewife using the Citizen app to experience some small portion of the stress that comes with tracking every major and minor crime in the city. It's all tracked. Everything's tracked. It goes into a database or a content stream and it becomes available to witness or analyze. The same basic technology that we use to suture the Gulf of Mexico is used also to vaporize an aid worker in his car in Kabul 
and artificial intelligence that might end our traffic problems will continue to be used to monitor and control the movements of the Uyghur population in Xinjiang. Well, what are the consequences of living in that world? The digital disaster that Pulas describes exceeds even Virilio's vision. Because for him, the scene of the accident is not the power plant or the shipping lane. The scene of the accident is the human mind and the human soul. A musician on the early American punk scene went by the name of Richard Hell. I can't remember his real name. Jewish guy, I think. He once predicted that uh, the art form of the future is celebrityhood. And he had in mind the kind of scene that was developing around Andy Warhol in New York, for example. And that would be put on display in the first reality show, in, in America at least. It was called An American Family, and it debuted in 1973. These were two, the Warhol scene and, and, and the show An American Family, these were two early expressions of a new phenomenon that had been spawned by the electric age of mass media. People who were famous simply for being famous. We're, we've got lots of these people now. We're very, we're very used to it. This was a new thing back then. It wasn't always the case that people could just swap out identities at will. It was well understood that it was largely the things that we don't choose, that we don't have a say in, that really make us who we are, which meant that your family and your community and your social class, your country, the age in which you were born, many other things, all had a say in who you are and define the boundaries of what you could become. You might have one personality at home and one at the workplace, maybe, but both of these are driven by necessity and the demands of the world, the people around you. They're not a creative decision. When television created the cult of the modern celebrity, though, there emerged a class of people whose identities were entirely artificial creations. I want to read you a passage from a book by an author named Andreas Killen. A very interesting book uh, that I drew on a bit in the Jim Jones series called 1973 Nervous Breakdown, in which he discusses Edie Sedgwick, uh, the one time, you know, really like the it girl in the Andy Warhol factory scene in the late 60s. He writes, quote, By the early 1970s, Warhol's world was littered with the carcasses of dead and burned out former superstars. Among them was Andrea Feldman, who starred in such Warhol films as Heat, 1972, and who committed a very public suicide on August 8, 1972, the 10th anniversary of the death of Marilyn Monroe, with whom Feldman identified herself. Remember that part, by the way. Not the date, but the fact that she identified herself with Marilyn Monroe to the point of killing herself on the 10th anniversary of, of her own death. Like Solanus, uh, Valerie Solanus was uh, the psychotic radical feminist and author of the Scum Manifesto who shot Andy Warhol in 1968. Like Solanus, who told the police that Warhol had too much control over her, Feldman seems to have attributed malevolent powers to Warhol. This power evidently extended even to the arrangements she made for her suicide, which was witnessed by several friends whom she had taken care without revealing her intentions to invite to her building. 
Among them was the poet Jim Carroll, who described the incident in his memoir, Forced Entries. Feldman was acting out the logic of a sensibility according to which everything can be converted into a spectacle, an image. As Warhol had said of his own attempted assassination, it was just as if I was watching another movie. No clearer testament to the end of the Warhol 60s could be found than the movie Chow Manhattan. Released in 1973, John Palmer and David Weissman's art house film chronicled the rise and fall of former superstar Edie Sedgwick, who died a few weeks after filming was completed in 1971. The movie is actually two films in one. The first, in color, shows Edie living in a pharmacological and alcoholic haze in the drained swimming pool of her mother's estate in Santa Barbara. It is structured around an extensive series of flashbacks taken from the black-and-white footage of a never-completed underground film shot in New York, 1967, by factory scenesters Genevieve Charbin and Chuck Wine. Edie relates her life story, via these flashbacks, to a dim-witted, flying-saucer-loving Texan who has stumbled into her life. Meanwhile, her mother periodically ships her off to a clinic run by the lecherous psychiatrist Dr. Roberts, where she is groped, administered jolts of electricity, and injected with a powerful sedative. The contrast between Edie's degraded state and her former glamorous days as superstar and fashion model serves as a comment on the wreckage to which the 60s reduced its greatest icons. For a brief moment in the mid-60s, Edie had been the brightest of the stars in the factory's firmament starring in several of Warhol's films in addition to gracing the cover of fashion magazines like Vogue and, according to Patti Smith, inspiring Dylan's album Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan, in a manner that, to some extent, mirrors the SLA's later conversion of Patti Hearst, Edie's exchanging of her socialite life for the freaky glamour of an underground cult made her perhaps Warhol's greatest conquest. At the same time, the relation between the two contained elements that directly anticipate an American family. Again, that's the first ever reality show, uh, which followed around an upper-middle-class family through a year of their lives in Santa Barbara, California. Warhol wrote that, I always wanted to do a movie of a whole day of Edie's life. What I liked was chunks of time all together, every real moment. Edie had served as factory muse, and as a kind of double of Warhols. After she dyed her hair silver, they became virtually indistinguishable, a weird pair of doppelgangers, both equally androgynous. As Patti Smith said, describing the first time she saw Edie's stick figure in vogue, she was like a thin man in black leotards. By 1967, however, Edie had dropped out of the factory scene and had begun her descent into the spiral of drug abuse and hospitalization that marked her last years. Chow Manhattan portrays its subject as still helplessly enthralled to the cult of celebrity. Though her 15 minutes of fame are long since up, Edie obsessively ruminates on her glory days and makes repeated attempts to reach Cosmopolitan editor Helen Gurley Brown by phone. Her bedroom in a tent in the swimming pool is adorned with life-sized images of herself and other members of the Warhol factory, some of whom, including 
Paul America, Viva, Bridget Berlin, and Baby Jane Holzer make cameo appearances. Called The Citizen Kane of the Drug Generation by The Village Voice, the film explores the dark underside of a celebrity-obsessed culture. On her way down, Edie briefly crossed paths with Lance Loud, who was on his way up. Uh, This was the grown son in the reality show in American Family. He was the most flamboyant character in the show uh, because he was the one who understood and embraced that what they were doing was performance art and not a documentary about a family. She appeared in a few frames of the final segment of An American Family at a fashion show held in Santa Barbara that Loud also attended. Loud, who had first become aware of Edie through a 1966 Time magazine article about the lifestyle she shared with Warhol, met her at the party following the show, as he later recounted. Edie came up, drawn like a moth to flames by those cameras. I was frightened. I thought suddenly it would appear that I was standing there with a ghost of my future self. Reviewing the film in the New York Review of Books, critic Robert Mazzocco saw it as a parable for the end of the 60s. Within the drugged-out world its characters inhabit, There were no idols left to fall, he wrote. Edie, in his eyes, was a fitting metaphor along the lines of Marilyn, uh, Marilyn Monroe, of beautiful, blighted youth at the edge of the precipice. He credited it with a sci-fi dimension as well, reminiscent of the writings of William Burroughs, noting the aura of some sort of white-coat futuristic fascism bubbling around its edges, not the fascism of the jackboot, but the fascism of shrinks and sanatoria, drugs and doctors. End quote. Now, there were a few people who learned to swim in these new waters. Swim really well, you know, in virtuosos like David Bowie, who's the prime example, but people like Madonna as well to a degree. We really see the fulfillment of Richard Hell's prophecy. These people donned and doffed entire personalities and identities like suits of clothes without bothering to pretend that their successive identities were real. And yet, in a sense, they were, they were real. You know, by some strange alchemy, their ephemeral identities often had more substance than the human substrate beneath them. They penetrated and came to dominate the person beneath them. The ultimate example of a celebrity whose public identity overshadowed its human host was Marilyn Monroe. Her public identity became so powerful that she, meaning she meaning her public image, is maybe more well known by more people now than than she was during her lifetime. Her public image decoupled from the real person to enter into what can only really be described, I think, as a contemporary pantheon, as a sort of goddess of love and eroticism. You know, Marilyn Monroe kind of, kind of plays that role. Marilyn Monroe is in some ways more alive now than she was then, in the sense that Marshall McLuhan intended when he wrote that history becomes mythic through time compression and juxtaposition of events as past, present, and future merge in the electric nowness. And yet, for her, of course, the sacrifice that this required was total. And the internet has 
inaugurated an era when everyone is encouraged to adopt a flexible liquid identity that can be dissolved and reconstituted at a rate that can keep pace with the rapid transformation of fashion characteristic of the age. And it's astonishing, but we now take it for granted. Uh, think of it as being completely unremarkable for someone to have a thousand followers on their social media account. I, I mean, like all of you listening are like, yeah, okay, right? But you know, you know what a rare experience it was? Until very recently, for a person to stand up before an audience of 10 people, many people, maybe many of you, um, it, it, even I'm kind of over this now, but I know the experience, I know the feeling of it, uh, suffer extreme anxiety, even panic attacks, at the prospect of having to stand and deliver in front of a group of 20 or 30 other students or coworkers. We're profoundly sensitive to the expectations and demands of others, and we adjust our behavior and our personalities in major and minor ways, often unconsciously, in order to accommodate them. And typically this meant adapting to a friend group or a family, not to an audience, not to followers. That was a very rare experience, and it was also an experience that was universally recognized as as not the norm, that such people were inevitably a little bit strange. And today, every person with a few thousand Twitter followers is a minor celebrity, with all the psychological consequences that that implies. Everybody has a public image that is different from the personality their friends and families know, which is different from the self that they experience inwardly as a subject. Each layer of abstraction further liquefies the identity. As you go out each step, it becomes more malleable and more fluid. The philosopher Frederick Jameson once wrote, quote, Schizophrenic experience is an experience of isolated, disconnected, discontinuous material signifiers which fail to link up into a coherent sequence. The schizophrenic thus does not know personal identity in our sense, since our feeling of identity depends on our sense of the persistence of the I and me over time. End quote. Jonah Peretti quoted that in an essay of his. It was his, it was his PhD thesis, philosophy thesis, and uh, uh, he, he quoted that and he continues on here. Quote, According to Jameson, the schizophrenic lacks a personal identity, is unable to differentiate between self and world, and is incapable of experiencing continuity through time. There are several reasons why Jameson associates these attributes of schizophrenia with postmodernism and late capitalism. In many respects, the media culture of the late 20th century simulates a schizoid experience. The rapid-fire succession of signifiers in MTV-style media erodes the viewer's sense of temporal continuity. To use the same words that James uses to, uh, Jameson uses to describe the schizophrenic experience, the images that flash across the MTV viewer's retina are isolated, disconnected, discontinuous material signifiers which fail to link up into a coherent sequence. This postmodern montage can have the effect of disorienting the subject and may contribute to the egolessness that is characteristic of schizophrenia. By destroying the distinction 
between high and low art, postmodern culture was able to integrate itself into the capitalist mass culture. MTV can serve as our example once again. For all its sexual explicitness, MTV fails to shock us. Thus, Jameson concludes that postmodernism is closely related to late capitalism. Where modernism often attacked the bourgeois society from which it emerged, postmodernism replicates, reproduces, and reinforces the logic of consumer capitalism. Thus, Jameson links schizophrenia to postmodernism and postmodernism to consumer capitalism. He is saying, in effect, that contemporary capitalism has extended the symptoms of schizophrenia to the masses in the form of postmodern culture. His formulation sees both postmodernism and schizophrenia as cultural forces that scramble and confuse. The schizophrenic confusion destroys the possibility of critical perspectives, such as those found in modernist traditions. In a fragmented cultural milieu, consumer culture can thrive unopposed. Like the schizophrenic, such a culture is rootless, separated from history, and outside human time. End quote. I want to read one more passage from Andreas Killen's book before I try to take this thing home. And I realize I've gotten myself into another rabbit hole here, and I'm not going to get to the bottom of it in this episode. So again, consider this part of what will be an ongoing exploration. Uh, James Poulos, the author whose book got me going down this path, will be on the show soon to, to talk about it himself. So, so this is another passage from Killen's book, 1973, Nervous Breakdown. And here he's following up on his earlier passage about Edie Sedgwick and the Warhol scene. Quote, If the cult of the celebrity had its casualties, those incapable of resisting either its allure or the fate that awaited them once their 15 minutes were over, it also had its conscientious objectors, figures such as novelist Thomas Pynchon and filmmaker Terrence Malick, who by refusing all interviews and shunning the public eye, jealously guarded their privacy as well as their aura as artists existing apart from society. Another such figure was the novelist Don DeLillo, whose mania for privacy was reportedly such that he once responded to someone who approached him for an interview by handing him a scrap of paper on which were written the words, I don't want to talk about it. The example of David Bowie, like the disappearance from the public eye of Bob Dylan several years earlier, hangs over DeLillo's 1973 novel, Great Jones Street, the story of a rock star who tries to step out of his legend. The novel's anti-hero, Bucky Wonderlick, quickly learns that his attempt to escape his own celebrity has made him, if anything, even more of a celebrity, the object of obsessive media speculation and rumors concerning his whereabouts. At the same time, he earns the admiration of a secretive, cult-like group called the Happy Valley Farm Commune, for whose members privacy has become the most revolutionary wish of all. They are stockpiling weapons and manufacturing a new drug in preparation for a violent campaign to return the idea of privacy to American life. When Wonderlick begins to talk about going back on tour, the cult members try to convince him that it would be better for his musical legacy to commit suicide by drug overdose. While the Edie Sedgwick story, as related in Chow Manhattan, 
suggested that a person could be literally unhinged by fame, that too much exposure was fatal. It also suggested there was something pathological about investing too heavily in images. Speaking of her first time seeing a picture of Edie, Patti Smith noted, She was such a strong image that I thought, that's it. It represented everything to me. Radiating intelligence, speed, being connected with the moment. Smith wrote a eulogy for Edie after her death and, in a piece in Interview magazine in the summer of 1973, spoke at length of Chow Manhattan and her infatuation with Edie. I've always been hero-oriented. Art was a way to ally myself with heroes because I couldn't make contact with God. The closest, most accessible God was a hero God, one such as Edie. Smith was also deeply invested in aura, or as she put it, I was very image-oriented. Seeing Edie bloated and wasted in the film reminded Smith that heroes die, images fade. She attributed her transition to a new and more complicated relation to images, having overcome her earlier infatuations, when I was still very much into image. I always felt I was in a black and white 16mm film. Growing up, she said, she had been a huge fan of Bob Dylan and Arthur Rimbaud, but had also read Vogue and Bazaar because an image is an image. Uh, end quote. And so uh, this indulged me a little bit. I'm going to read a little more from Peretti's thesis, and um, I'll get you guys out of here soon. Don't worry. Peretti goes on to lay out an alternative to Frederick Jameson's perspective. Uh, the alternative is based on some of the work by the French postmodern thinkers Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari, which I will skip over for now, uh, and go directly into the next section. And it goes like this, quote, Hoping for some insight into a possible resolution of this conflict, I turned to Jacques Lacan, Roland Barthes, and Jean Laplanche. I used Lacan to show the importance that images play in the process of ego formation and identification. Lacan's concept of the mirror stage. Lacan, Lacan by the way, was a French psychoanalyst and psychiatrist, um, although over the years he's turned out to be more interesting to contemporary philosophers than to others in his field. Uh, so here we go, yeah. Lacan's concept of the mirror stage describes the process by which the schizoid, polyperverse infant first gains a sense of having a unified identity. Lacan asserts that this experience of identity formation leads us to oppose any philosophy directly issuing from the cogito, meaning the self, the subject, Descartes in his foundational dictum, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, uh, you know, referring to the apparently self-evident fact of our own coherent inner selves. Lacan rejects that. The Cartesian concept of the self grounded in the self-evidence of the cogito, assumes that the ego is pre-given, requires no formation process, exists before the world, and even goes so far as to posit the self as the analytical precondition to the world's existence. Lacan's work refutes this view by demonstrating that the neonate, that's just a newborn baby, is forced into a world of already existing social and semiotic structures. The newborn must be inserted into this linguistic order and can only gain an ego in relation to this order. 
As Jameson told us earlier, there is no self, ego, I, or me without language. And language is relational. Perhaps the first semiotic stepping stone on the road to ego formation is the recognition of one's own reflection, the ideal I in Lacanian terminology. Lacan describes the process whereby an infant first comes to recognize itself in a mirror. Before this point of identification, the child does not conceptualize itself as a physically and psychologically bounded individual. If it is shown a mirror, it will not recognize itself. It will take little interest in the light bouncing off the glass. This changes sometime after the infant's sixth month, when an identification occurs. Identification is the transformation that takes place in the subject when he assumes an image. Now, Lacan's very complicated, and he drives me crazy most of the time when I try to read him, but this, this part's very important. The reflection is a mirage, which represents an exteriority in which the child's form is certainly more constituent than constituted. That is to say, the child's image is merely a single component of the child's being that metonymically represents the child as a totality. Metonymically just meaning the name or image of a thing being taken on an experiential level for the thing itself. The child is normally exceedingly happy with its new image, often laughing and smiling at the reflection. The situation changes, however, when the fictional nature of the image, he uses the word imago, so I guess I should too, when the fictional nature of the imago becomes apparent to the child. The child begins to realize that the ideal I with which I is in the letter I, like me, myself, and I, uh, it's not like... the things you look through. The child begins to realize that the ideal I with which it was so jubilant to identify is in fact incongruent with the child's more complex constitution. This results in the identification with the imago of the counterpart and the drama of primordial jealousy. That is to say, the child becomes alienated from its ideal I and begins to see it as another competing subjectivity. The love for the ideal I gives way to jealousy and fear of competition. And now we're back to the idea of the double as we found it in in Dostoevsky, for example. Now this is a lot of words to describe something that in its essence is really quite simple. The idea is that humans are constructed in such a way that we naturally identify with ideal images when we encounter them. In the case described here in the infant, it's the image of the baby in the mirror, which is ideal because it is only an image. And so it's free from the confusing and uncomfortable inputs and bodily sensations that bombard the consciousness of the real baby as it's it's experiencing the world. There's a short period of positive identification with that ideal image, very quickly followed by alienation from the image when its fictional character is understood, uh, once it's understood that that is not me. Now, here's the real key, though. This alienation does not destroy the power of the image. 
The image still exists in consciousness as a psychological reality, very powerfully. It's very similar to the way a celebrity exists in each of our consciousness as a psychological reality, even if we've never seen the person or, or met the person, or even if they were dead long before we were born. That person exists in your head, just like somebody maybe that you knew but haven't, haven't spoken to in 20 or 30 years or something. That, that person might as well be a mythological figure in terms of your your own phenomenology, but that's a, it's a very real psychological thing. You know, th th this is the way people often place their significant others or spouses in competition, quite literally, with some sex symbol celebrity that they've never met and they never will. And the image still exists, but now one is alienated from it. And if it was an ideal image with which you once identified then it isn't set up in consciousness as a judge of or a competitor to one's spouse or significant other, but of yourself. And this is what happens to a celebrity like Marilyn Monroe, who very powerfully identified with her ideal image. And then, of course, why wouldn't she, right? Virtually all of her human interactions were with people who were responding to that image, that's the, that's the thing they were interacting with. But over time, she came to understand that, of course, uh, Marilyn Monroe, this fictional thing, this love goddess, is, is just a fictional character. She identifies with it at first, but eventually realizes that this is not me. And so she lived her life in the shadow of this larger-than-life image. And who is Norma Jean Mortensen, Marilyn Monroe's real name, to compete with Marilyn Monroe, the love goddess, and her legions of worshipers who were all convinced that she, Marilyn Monroe, and not Norma Jean Mortensen, is the one that really exists. Peretti's thesis cites philosophers who were interested in postmodern cult the postmodern culture of electric mass media. And they kept referencing MTV, for example the acceleration of the rate at which images, and I want to emphasize by, by images, let's, let's call them imagos, potential mirror objects with which we are invited to identify. The acceleration of the rate at which these images are presented to us leads us into a psychological situation of profound disconnection and incoherence and disorientation. Our identities glom on to this image, and before it has any time to rest, it moves on to another and then another. And for people who are utterly absorbed in this media culture, it can obliterate the sense of even having a self that we perceive as solid and coherent through time, which is characteristic, again, according to Jameson, Lacan, and many others, of the schizophrenic experience. And now, in the smartphone age... We are almost all of us absorbed into that world all the time. And this is something of which Jonah Peretti, the author of that thesis I've quoted, was well aware. After he received his philosophy PhD, he became the founder of the website BuzzFeed. The advent of ubiquitous smartphones and social media has created a world where millions, uh, maybe soon hundreds of millions or billions, of people are encouraged to place themselves themselves in the same false position as Marilyn Monroe or Edie Sedgwick. 
The number of real-life people that you know probably sits somewhere under Dunbar's number of 150. Uh, For most people in our disconnected age, especially in a time of COVID lockdowns, it's probably much lower than that. But you might have a 1,000 Facebook friends or Twitter followers. You might have 10,000 or even 100,000. It's not that remarkable anymore. And, and these are the people you spend your time with. You know, studies have shown that teenagers, for example, often spend up to five to seven hours a day on their phones, much of that time engaged in social media. The online identity often receives more care and more attention than their personal relationships or their physical health. The avatar becomes the mirror object, the ideal eye with which we enter into jealous competition as it seeks to enslave our real selves as mere content miners in its service. How many of us know the woman who went to a party and was miserable the whole time only to check her Instagram feed uh, later on or or the next day and see that apparently she had the time of her life? She was miserable in the way that someone's miserable when they're at a job they don't like. Which she is. She's, she's not at a party to have a good time. She's there to mine content for her digital avatar. And she's become, in effect, its slave. I think we probably all know that person. Maybe we've been that person. The last thing I'll say for this week... Um, actually, you know what? I've jumped around and I am not leaving you guys with any resolution here. But uh, I promise you we will get there together. And... Um, I, I really do want to work on this together. Like, get into the comment section on this one. We're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this over the next couple of weeks or months. Um, I'll just I'll just leave it there for now and let this be a setup for future discussions. Because uh, any way I try to tie this up is gonna seem forced. Soon we'll get into the very new fact, and this is the aspect of the digital disaster Pulos really drills down on in his book that we're no longer being psychologically manipulated and deranged by advertising executives or politicians or even public opinion. The digital environment to which we have turned over control of our psychological and emotional realities is not even governed by people. It's governed by algorithms and swarms of digital bots that, that, that really have a life of their own now. At first, these were programmed with very simple goals in mind, but... As the technology has developed and the pretense to godhood of the technology's masters has become more manifest, the algorithms and bots have graduated from serving us, uh, you know, say by offering us relevant content or smart advertising, to shaping us and increasingly driving our behavior. The Terminator movies might have convinced us that it's a bad idea to turn over control of our nuclear weapons to an autonomous AI, but... Skynet is way more sophisticated than that in real life. It wouldn't have to launch missiles or manufacture robots to kill us when it's much easier, and certainly within its capacity, to get us to kill ourselves and each other.
Oh, yeah.